You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I want to start out this morning a little bit differently than usual. As we turn our attention to the text before us today, I want to start things out with a short prayer from a Puritan, William Ames, written about 400 years ago. I think it's, it's very brief, but it's very apropos, and hopefully it will tune our hearts to what we have before us today. He says, Lord Jesus, may that good spirit of Jesus Christ open our eyes and the eyes of our minds that we may see and approve things that are excellent. May he persuade our hearts to receive the truth in the love of it and direct our steps to walk in the paths of mercy and truth that we may be saved. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of where we are in this wonderful chapter. In verse 1, Paul gave us that primary command. He told us to stand firm in the Lord. And in the next eight verses that follow, he unpacks six necessary habits for spiritual immovability. Six necessary habits for spiritual immovability. In verses 1 through 3, we saw that to stand firm, we must remain united. Remain united. We must come together and be of one mind one mind in the Lord, and to agree in the Lord. In verse 4, we're told to remain joyful, remain joyful, with the command to continually rejoice in the Lord. And it's so important, Paul just keeps repeating himself on that point. He says, rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say, rejoice. With the command to rejoice in the Lord, he then transitions into verse 5 with, we must remain reasonable reasonable. We shouldn't be quick to defend ourselves or our rights. And then last time we looked at verses 6 and 7 and the call to remain prayerful, prayerful. Today as we come near the end of the list, Paul reminds us to remain focused, remain focused. That's the emphasis for today. So please follow along as I read the primary verse that God has for us. Philippians 4, 8. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Since 1914, framed placards with the word THINK in all caps have been on the walls of the offices and plants of the International Business Machines Corporation, IBM, all over the world. This one-word challenge was initiated by IBM's founder, Thomas Watson Sr. Watson gained a reputation as the world's great salesman. And he's also known for saying that, quote, the trouble with every one of us is that we don't think enough, end quote. While we understand what he meant by that, 
It has been estimated that the human mind processes at least 10,000 thoughts per day. That's well over 3,500,000 thoughts per year. Our problem is not a failure to think enough. Our problem is a failure to think about the right things. Philippians 4.8 is here to tell us how to think. And this is so important because what you think determines what you are and what you do. Proverbs 27.19 says, As in water reflects face, or face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. So as with water, face reflects face. Your thoughts, your heart, will reflect who you really are. As a man thinks, so he is. In Matthew 15, Jesus makes it clear that it's not what comes to us from the outside that defiles a man, but it's what comes out of us from the inside. Our thoughts, our desires, our ambitions, our mental activity, that's what makes us unclean. He's saying we have it all backwards. What we physically eat has no bearing on the inner man. But the things that we choose to think about, the things that we choose to digest spiritually, that has a way of coming out and corrupting the whole person. When I was in school pursuing a degree in information technology, they would remind us over and over and over again the old computer slogan, garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. If you put wrong information into a machine, you can't expect to get the right answer. 100% of the time, without fail, you will always get the wrong answer. And the same can be said for us. Listen to what God has to say about the minds of those who consume a steady heart or, or a steady diet of garbage. Here's the condition of the unregenerate mind. This is true for every unbeliever until the Spirit intervenes and brings them to saving faith. Romans 1.28. He says they have a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They're low in their thinking. 2 Corinthians 3.14. Their minds are hardened. Hardened. 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. They literally cannot see. Ephesians 4.17, we are told not to act like them in the futility of their minds. In other words, their minds are futile. They're worthless. They're ineffective. Their thinking is pointless. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding and their hearts are hardened. So they think they know what's going on, but the lights are off and they're proud of their ignorance. Colossians 1.21, their minds are hostile towards God. Colossians 2.8, their minds are deceived. Colossians 2.18, their minds are sensuous, meaning that their desires drive them and their decision-making processes. 1 Timothy 6.5, they are depraved in mind. Their minds are depraved. 2 Timothy 3.8, their minds are corrupted. There's been a, a hard drive crash somewhere. They've been corrupted. And Titus 1.15, their minds are defiled. That is God's assessment of the unregenerate person and the way they think. He says their minds are debased, hardened, blinded, futile, darkened, hostile, deceived, sensuous, depraved, corrupted, and defiled, amongst other things. Not too long ago, we looked at the profile of 
those who are within the church and think that they're saved but actually aren't. We saw that in Philippians 3, verse 19. Look at that. He says, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. All of these verses describe all of us before the Spirit of God used the power of the gospel to open our minds to the glories of Christ. Prior to our regeneration, our salvation, our thinking was hopelessly lost. Hopelessly lost. Just as a blind man can't see and a hostile man can't love, so the mind of an unbeliever can't believe on its own. Not without outside help. Not without spiritual intervention. Hebrews 8.10 says, I, speaking of God, he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Or consider one of my favorites, 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord and who has instructed him? But we, but we have the mind of Christ. It's that transformation that occurs at salvation where we receive the mind of Christ. At that moment, a lifelong process is initiated. From that moment, our thinking is to be renewed and transformed by the power of the Spirit through the Word of God. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Friends, I bring all of that up to say that I can't emphasize this enough. This is a big deal. The call to actively renew our minds now that our minds have been transformed by the power of the gospel This command is one of the most central commands that our King has given us. As we continue to set the table for our text here, go ahead and turn with me real quick to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This passage pulls it all together. It reveals the true state of the unregenerate mind and the true state of the Christian mind and and what it means for each person. Romans chapter 8 starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, now there he's talking about unbelievers, and that becomes perfectly clear as we move forward in this passage. He says, For those who are unbelievers, those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As we saw in this morning's scripture reading, we are to set our minds on things that are above. We must live according to the Spirit, and we must set our minds on the things of the Spirit. That is exactly what what Paul is telling us how to do 
here in Philippians 4.8. He's telling us where we must direct our attention if we are to stand firm and grow in Christ-likeness. He's providing a template or a grid for us to use as a filter, telling us what it is that we need to focus on as we put our minds to the task. Meaning that everything that we watch, everything that we listen to, everything that we read, everything that we participate in, everything that we devote ourselves to, it all needs to first make it past this template. These are the parameters, the Holy Spirit-inspired guardrails for everything in life, for music listening, for television watching, for book reading, for online surfing, for social gatherings, and every other activity we have. Now, on one hand, it would be easier if the Bible just simply gave us a list of specific things to do and, and things not to do. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't tell the Philippians, it's okay to go to this theater, but avoid that one. He doesn't say, listen to this order, but stay away from that one. And he doesn't say, here are the songs on Rome's top 40 that you need to avoid. He doesn't say that. He doesn't give us a list. Instead, he gives us something so much better. He gives us a timeless set of parameters that can be applied to every culture, every time period, every person, and every situation. This isn't legalism. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. And at the same time, this isn't license. It's not a green light for us to just do whatever we want. No, this is a call to obedience with healthy boundaries for anyone who wants to stand their ground and grow in Christ. So let's look at this list of eight virtues designed to regulate what we allow between our ears. You will notice the first six virtues are specific criteria, and the last two are general summaries. Put them all together, and you have God's rules for a good and healthy thought life. Now, as we look at this list, it becomes clear that the only way to perfectly fulfill this standard is to only think about God's Word. Because, after all, Scripture is the only thing that perfectly meets this standard. But if that's all that God wanted us to do, just sit around and consider Scripture all the time, he would have said that. And that's not what he says here. Paul would just simply write, think about Scripture, end of verse 8, move on to verse 9. But that's not what he does. Instead, he gives us this list because Paul knows what it's like to live in the real world. He knows that of the 10,000 thoughts that we might have in a given day, not all of them can be about Scripture. In fact, it's safe to say that most of them won't be about Scripture. Most of them won't be saturated with divine truth. So we have to learn to discipline our minds and to focus on the things that will lift us up and not hold us back. So let's look at these specific virtues. First of all, he says, whatever is true. Whatever is true. This first word is perhaps the easiest word study in the entire bunch. It means to be in accordance with fact. We're just simply real, something that's real. True means genuine, actual, not imaginary. The same word appears in Acts 12 when an angel rescued Peter from prison. You will recall that the scene was rather surreal. Paul was 
bound with two chains between two soldiers, and then they put sentries at the door for safe measure. So Paul, or Peter wasn't going anywhere. Peter was stuck. But you remember the angel appears, and the cell is flooded with light, and the chains fall off. And even after all of that, the angel still has to jab Peter in the side in order to wake him up. Man, I want that kind of faith, just as a side note. To be in that kind of a situation and sleep like a baby. So Peter needs woken up. And the angel tells him, get dressed. And Peter follows him out. But through that entire ordeal, Peter doesn't know what to make of it. He doesn't know what's really happening. Acts 12.9 says, and he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel. He didn't know if it was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. That word real, it's the same word in our list. So what exactly is Paul saying when he encourages us to think about whatever is real, whatever is true? He's saying choose to think about things that conform to reality. He's saying don't live in an imaginary world. Stay grounded with things that are true. This particular virtue is extremely relevant for us today because the global pandemic has certainly made it increasingly difficult for us to remain focused on what matters and what's true. One of the more revealing aspects of the last year has been the consumption of information and how we spend our time during the lockdown. Is there anybody else here who wishes we had never invented the cell phone? I certainly feel that way. I certainly feel that way now, more so today than I did a year ago. As you can imagine, internet usage has skyrocketed. It's gone through the roof. And all this extra time of being stuck at home has given us more time to dwell on things that we shouldn't. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I love a good conspiracy theory. I do. I love a good conspiracy theory. Give me a flashlight and some spare time, and I'll gladly explore whatever rabbit hole you put in front of me. Because it's fun. It's fun to imagine that everything has a seedy underbelly, as if only a few people really know what's going on, and everything that we don't like is somehow connected. Conspiracy theories and one-sided radio can be a wonderful time. It can be a wonderful way to escape the realities of life for a while. In fact, when I was in seminary, my Greek professor, he was really good at reading the class. So when our eyes would glass over from studying Greek participles, he would usually pause his lectures and give us a brain break by presenting some colorful conspiracy theory. Looking back, I feel like I received two classes for the price of one, because we didn't just learn Greek. We learned about the effects of fluoride, the reptilian royal family, the power behind the Vatican, the signs of the Masons, Bohemian Grove, Georgia Stone, Jade Helm, Black-Eyed Children, and so much more. And it worked. After a few minutes of digging into juicy half-truths and watching some fuzzy video from the late 90s where Hillary Clinton gives Walter Cronkite the Global Governance Award, after all those kinds of breaks that we would take in our classes, I think most of us were awake and ready to parse more participles. But as fun and as entertaining, friends, as conspiracy theories and hidden agendas can be, when we take them seriously, they open the door to all sorts of damage. 
all sorts of damage. Why? Because they aren't grounded in reality. There may be a loose kernel of truth hidden somewhere in all the sensationalism, but such yarns open our minds up to all sorts of error. Because here's how conspiracy theories work. They begin with a claim to some secret knowledge. They promise to reveal a hidden agenda, a real story, the truth that others are hiding. So it sucks you in with a promise, and then it tells you how to think. Typically, online stories and and videos and other conspiracy theory media, they will present one-sided presentations of truth. They make good on their promise by revealing the testimony of one or two credible witnesses. But one thing they all have in common is an astonishing lack of citations and sources. One incredibly popular 26-minute flick that was passed around last year kept flashing the screen with blurred-out pictures of official-looking documents and showing us a number of unnamed people in scrubs, presenting them as medical doctors. And yet there was absolutely nothing to back it up. Like all good propaganda flicks, they tell us how to think by taking us down a path and then stopping just shy of making a conclusion. They allow you to make the final leap and take ownership of finishing the puzzle yourself. It's like when we were kids. You remember those pictures, the connect the dot pictures? Where you would start out with one and then you'd go to two and then you'd go to three and four and so forth and you'd just keep making lines until eventually a picture would appear? It's just like that. By the time you're done, the lines form a picture and you are so proud. Why? Because you connected the dots. But that picture wouldn't exist if someone else hadn't arranged and numbered the dots for you in order to connect them. And that's exactly what conspiracy theories do. Like I said, they have their place in coloring books, in spy novels. But we cannot afford, friends, to waste our time on such stories, to believe them. Isaiah 8, 12, and 13 tell us exactly how God feels about conspiracy theories. Believe it or not, there's a verse for that. Isaiah 8, 12, and 13. Wonderful verses to underline. God himself says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. You see, there isn't one kernel of truth in the entire universe that God doesn't already know about. And God tells us not to worry about conspiracies. Instead, he tells us to stay focused on him. And if you can't help yourself, if you have to worry about something, then friend, worry about him. Because he is far more dangerous than any government or any corporation or any conspiracy. As Christians, we need to become impartial judges, testing everything, holding fast to what is good, and staying far away from what is evil. We need to practice making judgments in the fear of the Lord without bias, prejudice, or favoritism. We need to recognize bias when it comes. We need to fact-check everything and cross-examine everything. 
Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. We can't afford to rely on unchallenged, one-sided narratives. We should examine everything. And then we should apply the same rigorous standards of truth to our favorite pundits and conspiracy theorists that we apply to the mainstream media. We can't give one side a pass. We need to examine it all. And once we come to an impartial judgment, we must move forward in both confidence and humility. Because, friends, the truth is more important than being right. The truth is more important than being right. Let me ask you this. Do you choose to think about things that conform to reality? Perhaps conspiracy theories aren't your struggle. Perhaps you've been around the block a few times, and you know that the empty promise of hidden wisdom and, and insider knowledge, you know that that always leads to disappointment, or worse, embarrassment. But what do you regularly set your mind on? What do you think about? What about other amusements? Do you find yourself lost for time exploring new worlds in novels and video games? Do you form emotional connections with the fictional characters of a relational drama on TV? You've heard me say it before that our English word amusement is just the word muse, which means to think, with a negative prefix ah placed at the front of it. So it literally means not to think. And that's okay. It's okay not to think every once in a while. It's good to unplug our brain and give ourselves a rest. But it's not okay for the Christian mind to live in a world that isn't real. That's not okay. And that's the first quality in our list. And I think it's first for a reason. We must tear down speculations. We need to hold on to what is true. And we need to examine everything. Next, he says, whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable. This word honorable, it means worthy of respect, noble, dignified, elevated, and lofty. It appears in 1 Timothy 3 as one of the requirements for both elders and deacons. There it is translated dignified. In the ancient world, this word referred to majestic things, high things, lofty things, things that demand honor and respect. If something was honorable, it would lift your mind out of the gutter. It would cause you to rise above those things that are base and vulgar. Let's be honest. We live in a very perverse culture, in a wicked culture, a society that celebrates dishonor. A couple weeks ago, I came across an article saying that someone in New York has actually filed a claim with the Manhattan Federal Court to legally marry their adult child. Those in support are hoping to gain traction because of a favorable ruling back in 2014 where an uncle was allowed to marry his niece. In a follow-up article, one person argues, quote, listen to this thinking. He says, it is absurd to say that an adult can't consent to marry their parent. It's absurd. That same adult can be sent to war, take on six or seven figures of debt, 
operate heavy machinery, be sentenced to death by a federal court, and consent to sex with five strangers and marriage with, with one of them, but can't consent to marry someone they love? He goes on to say, allegations of grooming are laughable attempts to deny someone their rights, even though it will have no impact on the person objecting. End quote. Church, people actually think this way. They believe this. It's moral relativism. It's the harm principle on steroids. This idea that the actions of an individual should only be limited if they inflict harm on others. What we see today is a no harm, no foul philosophy. It says you don't have the right to object if it doesn't affect you personally. No harm, no foul. It doesn't matter how immoral, base, or vulgar the action might be. But the problem with that sort of thinking is that society is made up of individuals, much like how the church is made up of individual Christians as we come together and become the body of Christ. Society is made up of individuals. And once that door is open for more individuals to give greater expression to the wickedness of their hearts, what impact does that have on society? It pollutes society with even greater vulgarity. And all of a sudden, that, that which was once hidden in the back is now pulled to the front. The quality of our entertainment falls. The standards for decency and acceptable behavior falls. The expectations placed upon us and others falls. And, and it becomes harder for us to find things that are honorable let alone set our minds on them. But friends, we must. We must. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 1 John 1.6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. We are liars. And we have no fellowship with him. No fellowship with the truth. We can't afford to allow our standards to keep falling with the world's dishonorable downgrade. We can't afford it. We need to focus on those things that are morally upright and honorable according to God's standards. Third, he says, whatever is just. Whatever is just. This word is commonly translated righteous throughout the New Testament. It means to line up with the right standard. It's justice, fairness, it's doing the right thing. In the ancient world, this word was used often for scales in the marketplace. Merchants would place a standardized weight on one side of the scales, and they would pour out an equal amount of grain on the other side of the scales, and they would wait for the two to line up. And once they lined up, that would be considered right or just. Dishonest merchants would shave off part of the weight, or they would mislabel them on purpose in order to come out just a little bit ahead of the deal. That's why Proverbs 20, 23 says, unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. It's also why God says in Leviticus 19, 36, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. God says you need to make sure that your equipment is this word just. It's righteous. It falls into the right standard. It lines up with the right standard. And here in Philippians 4.8, he says the same thing about our thoughts. 
our thoughts. Our thought life is to line up with God's standard of what's acceptable and what's not. Because right thinking will lead to right living. Fourth, he says whatever is pure. Whatever is pure or holy. This word often appears in contrast to moral filth. It's the opposite of sleazy. It's having a clean mind, a holy mind, an unpolluted mind. Often, Scripture uses it in contrast to sexual sin, but it is so much more than that. So much more than just sexual sin. It refers to anything, anything that is wholesome and uncontaminated by sin. Then it is pure. If we are to live a pure life, then we must focus on things that are pure. So the real question for all of us this morning regarding purity is, how pure do you want to be? Do you really want to be pure? Do you want to be partially pure? Or do you want to actually be pure? Listen, purity never happens on accident. It always starts in the mind. And then it moves through into a pure life. Number five, he says, whatever is lovely. This is the only place in the entire New Testament that this word is found. It means to inspire love through beauty, delight, or pleasure. And it's obvious by his placement here in this list as number five, that Paul is not simply referring to anything or everything that looks good. He is referring to the beauty of holiness against the hideousness of sin. Lovely embodies everything Christ-like, every attitude, every action, every thought that rejects the lowly and embraces the lofty. Lovely thoughts are not ugly thoughts, but those that are spiritually attractive and pleasing. If someone else could crawl into your mind and see and listen to the thoughts that you have on a day-in, day-out basis, how would they react? Would they be disgusted by what they see? Would they be horrified, disappointed, nauseated, or embarrassed? Or would they be delighted? Would they be encouraged, strengthened, and drawn to your thoughts? Because your thoughts are appealing. I, for one, am glad that none of us can crawl into each other's heads. I am so thankful for that fact. But friends, let's not forget that even our most personal thoughts are far from private when we consider God. Psalm 139.2, You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Meaning, you know what I'm going to think long before I think it. In Psalm 94.11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. Listen, I can't crawl into your head. Your spouse can't read your mind like a book. And your closest friend who knows you so well, they don't really know what's going on in those six inches between your ears. But God does. God sees it all. He hears it all. He reads it all. He knows it all. Of the millions of thoughts that you have had in your lifetime, not one of them has remained hidden from God. So Christian, how's your thought life? How's your thought life? Is it lovely, gracious, sweet, and delightfully holy? Do you choose to focus on things that you know are attractive in God's eyes? Or would you rather dwell on things that are less than lovely? 
6, he says, whatever is commendable. Commendable, like lovely, this is the only time that this word appears in the New Testament. It means praiseworthy, reputable, or highly spoken of. Commendable things are things worthy of respect. I remember a number of years ago, it became cool for Christian bands to start dropping the foulest language on their albums. And for the first time, some Christian groups started releasing clean radio edits for their songs. You can imagine the surprise for those who bought their music because they liked what they heard on Christian radio, only to discover something else entirely when they got home. Some of the foulest language we have. But truly, the saddest part of the entire ordeal, as more and more bands started to follow suit, was the immediate outpouring of Christian articles in favor of the vulgarities, saying it's real, it's authentic, it's messy, and it's even true worship. Compare that to Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Or Ephesians 5.4. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. Listen, what goes in will eventually find its way out. And these things are out of place because a believer's speech is not to be filthy, foolish, or crude. Why? Because our minds don't belong in the gutter. They don't. If we don't focus on that which is commendable, that which is praiseworthy in the eyes of God, then we will eventually become just as guttural as the world. Friends, these are the six specific qualities for a godly thought life. Take anything. doesn't matter what it is. If a thing is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, then it's worthy. It's worthy of our time and our attention. If it's false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, unlovely, or unpraiseworthy, then you need to cut that thing out of your life. We all do. If it passes this test, God gives it a green light. If it fails, the light is red. It's not even yellow. It's red. Because everything... Everything outside of this list, it will promise peace and life, but in the end, it will deliver death. Because the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is peace and life. Friends, it will not leave you full. It will leave you famished. It will not leave you satisfied. It will leave you starving. If you and I have any hope for standing firm in the days ahead, with feet firmly planted against Satan, the world, and the flesh, then we must take the battle for our minds seriously. This is further punctuated with two more summarizing statements here in our text. He says, If there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, anything, think about these things. This command to think is logizomai, where we get our word logic and logarithm. It's a mathematical term meaning to process, to reckon, to calculate, to put the work in, to exert mental effort. 
Also, the verb here is in the present tense, meaning that we are to continually, at all times, in every circumstance, think this way. We need to constantly process our thoughts. We need to take inventory of our affections, and we need to apply the grid of these qualities that we've been given here by the Holy Spirit. We need to apply this grid to everything that we consume. This isn't a mild suggestion of a country preacher originally from the Midwest. This is the imperative, the command of God himself for all of us to saturate our thinking with these things. So Christian, how's your thought life? What are you dwelling on? What consumes your affections? What do you care about? Before we call it a day, I want to quickly leave you with four biblical action items. And hopefully they will help you fulfill this command. None of these things are mind-blowing, by the way. They should all be no-brainers. But it helps to reinforce simple truths and to remind ourselves of what we know, what we know is true, and then to take that knowledge and follow through. So in light of this text, let me first of all encourage you to examine your thoughts. Examine your thoughts. Audit yourself. What are the things that excite you the most? What draws you? Do you love God? And the things of God? How much? How about compared to everything else that you love? Do you think about God often? Is your life centered around God? Is it centered around Him and and what He has required of you, what He has done for you, who He is? How consumed are you with thoughts about God? Does His knowledge of your thoughts Does that influence the the things you think about? Knowing that nothing is hidden from him. That he hears everything. He sees everything. He knows everything. Christian, examine your thoughts. And then evaluate all things. Evaluate all things. Examine your thoughts. Evaluate all things. Ask yourself, do the things I think about the most, do they pass this test here in Philippians 4.8? Does this thing that I love, does it even have a drop of excellence or praiseworthiness about it? Would Jesus enjoy it as much as I do? We are told in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to take every, cat, uh, every thought captive to obey Christ. So how seriously do we take the guardianship over our minds? Third, eliminate worldly thinking. Eliminate worldly thinking. Proverbs 6.27, another excellent verse to have underlined. Proverbs 6.27. He asked the question, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? It's a good question. It's a good question with an obvious answer. No. No, he can't. If you think you can separate your mind from your life, that you can fill your mind with filth and somehow still live a pure life, friend, you are playing with fire and you are going to get burned. There is no alternative. If you really want to grow in holiness, walk in wisdom, flourish in the Spirit, and become like Christ, if you want the peace of God that can only come from the God of peace, 
then you need to cut those things out of your life that are going to burn you, that run contrary to Philippians 4.8 and the rest of Scripture. You need to remove them. Because those things that you love, they don't love you back. They don't. So examine your thoughts. Evaluate all things. And eliminate worldly thinking. Finally, embrace God's Word. Embrace God's Word. Listen, it's easy to dwell on the things of earth. But you can't dwell on the things of heaven unless you know what they are. We have to be in the Word. And this Word has to be in us if we hope to stand firm. If we hope to grow in godliness and become more like Christ, we must be in the Word. So church, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Because you are what you think. So finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, friends, think about these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God of heaven, thank you again for giving us this grid. Thank you for giving us these parameters and not giving us a list of do's and don'ts. Instead, we have this timeless grid with which we can evaluate everything that comes our way. Lord, I pray that we would be a holy people, that we would set our minds on things above and not on earthly things. Lord, that our thoughts would be consumed with you, with your glory, with your purposes, your plans. Lord, that we would be in this word and that this word would dwell in us richly. Lord, work in our hearts. Lord, may we evaluate everything according to these virtues. May we be people who are known for the truth, who hold fast to what is true as impartial judges. May we hold to purity. May we pursue holiness with all of our hearts. Lord, may we be those who don't live in the gutter, that don't participate in what the world participates in, doesn't find pleasure in in what the world finds pleasure in, Lord, but let us find our pleasure in you, our joy in you. Lord, we know that if we hold fire to to our chest, we know that we're going to be burned. So God, save us, rescue us from the consequences of so much sin so that we may live holy lives that we may walk in newness and fullness of life, that we would have untethered fellowship with you. Lord, we love you. We thank you again for the wonderful promises of your word, for the glories of Christ and the cross and the gospel. Thank you. In your precious and holy name, amen.